Well, good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Westbridge, and it's awesome to have you with us. I want to say hello to those of you in our parent viewing area. Thanks for joining us there. It's a great option if you have small children that you prefer to keep with you during the service. I also want to say hello to those of you who are joining us on our online campus and uh, microsite. Uh, awesome to have you guys with us as well. And uh, a couple of quick things. I want to remind you that uh, we're doing something. We do this uh, every year, kind of our year-end legacy offering is coming up in November. So that's actually three weeks from today. We're going to be receiving an offering that goes above and beyond the, our regular giving, and we're going to give 100% of those funds away to uh, local projects, global projects, uh, things that are uh, taking place here in our community and around the world as a way to help fund ongoing ministries that are already happening. And so uh, we love to do that. And uh, if you're thinking about, okay, what could I do to participate in that? Our goal with that is simply that you would pray, that you would say, God, how could I participate? And that you just follow however God leads you and that we just do 100% participation, whatever God's asking you to do. And I think that when we do that together, uh, it honors God and it makes an impact in our world. So that's coming up November 21st. I want to keep that on your radar. You're going to hear more about that over the next few weeks. And then uh, the other thing I want to say is if you're new, if you've, if you've started attending Westbridge Church in the last few weeks or the last few months, and uh, I would just love the chance to meet with you. I'd love the chance to connect with you. And so right after service, uh, I'm going to be hanging out right down front, right here, and uh, I would love for you to come say hi. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hang out and just connect, and I would love to meet you, introduce yourself, uh, I'd love to introduce myself and meet face to face and uh, just talk to you and answer any questions you have and get to know you for three, four minutes after service. So if you've, if you've been coming for a few months or a few weeks or if this is your first time and we've never met before, I would love to meet you and connect with you. So that's going to be right after. All right. So today we're jumping into our series. We've been, uh, we're in week five of a series called Identity. And today we're talking about marriage. And so I thought it would be really good to get some uh, wisdom and some advice from kids because they seem to have a great perspective. So these are, these are some, uh, some wisdom from kids on the topic of marriage. Uh, this is Carolyn, age eight. Uh, she said this. These are a bunch of kids who were interviewed about marriage. And she says, my mother says to look for a man who is kind. And that's what I'm going to do. Find somebody who's kind, tall, and handsome. <laughs> that's Carolyn, age eight. Uh, Kirsten, age 10, says this. No person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before. And then you get to find out later who you're stuck with. So that's, that's what Kirsten thinks. Uh, Carolyn, age eight, uh, uh, just says this. Uh, 84 is the best age to get married. She says 84. Because at that age, you don't have to work anymore, and you can spend all your time loving each other in your bedroom. <laughs> From the mouths of children, right? All right. Uh, Anita, age nine, says it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. <laughs> Lynette, age eight, says this, dates are for having fun and people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something to say if you listen long enough. <laughs> Derek says this, he's eight, he says, you might have to guess, like he was asking you tell if people are married. He says, well, you might have to guess if people are married to each other based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids or not. Which seems like a good, <laughs> like, no, they're yelling at different kids. They're not married. They're not together. Yeah. And then this is my favorite. Ricky, age 10, he says, this is just great wisdom. Tell your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. <laughs> and I think Ricky's going to do really well. 
So throughout this series, what we've been doing is we've been walking through uh, this letter that Peter writes to a group of people who are followers of Jesus. They're living in the first century, and they're scattered throughout the northern European provinces of the Roman Empire. They're under intense persecution, and Peter is writing to them to say, this is what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus, even in the midst of a hostile environment. And uh, he says we're, we're kind of tempted throughout this letter to look back and look at our behavior and let that determine our identity. And we're also tempted to look forward at the what ifs and uh, allow that to shape our behavior. And Peter says, no, 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 Here, here's what this comes down to. Your behavior doesn't shape your identity, but remembering who you are, who Jesus has created you to be, who God's created you to be, that should shape the way that you behave and the way that you trust and the way that you move forward. And Peter wants to remind his readers, including us, our identity has already been determined because of Jesus. And so over and over again, we've been talking about this throughout this letter. And this is our fifth week and we're working our way through this letter. He reminds us, Jesus paid a ransom for us through his sacrifice. So uh, as a result of that, we are temporary residents and foreigners. He says this over and over again. We're temporary residents, we're foreigners, we're, we're strangers, we're aliens. He uses all, these, all this language to remind us that we actually live differently, that because of that identity, our behavior sometimes looks different than the way that the the rest of society tends to operate. And so uh, our behavior in our different arenas should reflect the citizenship to to the kingdom of which we're a part. And so we said the first week, we have this living hope that our hope isn't in a something, it's in a someone, that Jesus is alive. So our hope can be alive because Jesus is alive, because we have hope in the one who overcame death. And then we said the second week that uh, he asked us to be holy, calls us to be holy. But holiness isn't about uh, being separate. It's about what Jesus has already done for us. We can be holy because of the work that Jesus did for us. And then uh, we talked about this idea that we're priests and that every one of us is a pastor, that we all have access to God and to the scriptures and all of us have uh, responsibility to reflect the way of Jesus. And then last week we talked about uh, how we respond how we respond to criticism, how we respond to uh, authority, how we respond to adversity and to um, suffering. And our responses actually matter because of who we are. Our responses make a difference. How we respond to criticism is not to get back at people, but to live such honorable lives that we actually point people to Jesus. And we're citizens of heaven, so our response to authority should always be. Uh, We submit to authority whenever it doesn't directly contradict what God asks us to do, even if we disagree with it, because at the end of the day, we're not trying to win against people. We're trying to win people over. And we do that not because they deserve it, but because this is what God has asked us to do. And we're citizens of heaven, so our responsibility uh, is to respond to adversity and to respond to suffering in such a way that we live honorable lives that point people to Jesus. And so now we get to chapter 3, and now it's going to get real. Because today uh, we're talking about husbands and wives. Husbands and wives. And so Peter has a message, and it's really important to understand that these uh, chapters and verses that are a part of your Bible, that are part of the scriptures that we read today, were not included in the original text. Those were added in much later in history so that we could kind of reference uh, uh, where to find certain verses in certain chapters. And so uh, understand when the people in the first century received this letter from Peter, it's just one continuous letter. It's one continuous thought. And so he's coming out of saying, look, we, we are... Uh, uh, chosen people. We are, we are priests. 
and, and how we respond to authority, we matter, it matters because we submit to authority because that's what God's asked us to do, not because they deserve it. And we submit to uh, our earthly masters, even though that's, they can be sometimes harsh, but we do that not because they deserve it, but because we want to point people to Jesus. And so he's talking about all these responses. He says over and over again, this is what God has done. So this is who we are. So this is how you live. This is what God has done. So this is who we are. So this is how you live. And so as we read through these verses relating to wives and relating to husbands, keep in mind that greater context. The greater context is we do this, we live this way, we do these things, we obey these relational principles, not because our spouse deserves it necessarily, but because as citizens of heaven, this is how we are to behave. This is how we are to live. And so here's his instructions for wives, and it starts off like this. In the same way, in the same way, meaning uh, just like I was talking about submitting to authority, just like I was talking about submitting to masters, just like I was talking about throughout this whole letter that I've been writing, Peter says, in the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. Now, I wanted to read that really fast because, ladies, I can feel the bristle already. It's really hot in here. Some of you are just absolutely flabbergasted when you hear this. You're just like, what is happening? Uh, so we got to walk through this together. Hang in here with me. There's instructions for wives. There's instructions for husbands. So you need to know most marriages in the day of Peter were arranged marriages. Most marriages in Peter's day were arranged marriages. So Peter is speaking into a dynamic where you have a wife who is a follower of Jesus and a husband who she didn't necessarily choose who is not a follower of Jesus. And it's right in line with this whole pattern of thought that's been going on through the last uh, couple of weeks. Hey, this is how we respond to authority. Not because they deserve it, but because we're citizens of heaven. So we want to not win against them, but win them over. Oh, some of you have masters. Some of you are slaves. And... When your master, even if they're harsh, you respond in the way that Jesus would respond, not because they deserve it, but because you're a citizen of heaven. So this is how we live. And then he gets to this, he's continuing the same pattern. He's saying on theme, live such an honorable life in front of your unbelieving husband that he's won over by the way that you live, not because he deserves it, but because you're a citizen of heaven and your life can point him to Jesus. Now, if this is God's instruction to people who are uh, in an arranged marriage, how much more will these principles apply when we're in a relationship that we actually chose? And so there's some incredible principles. If we're willing to listen, if we're willing to open our eyes and open our hearts and open our ears to, to see this, uh, I think it can be really, really beneficial for those of us, not only who are in marriage relationships, but you can apply some of these uh, relational principles to your friendships, uh, to some of your parenting uh, dynamics, and you will find that the wisdom in the scriptures really applies. So first thing is this. Number one, this is instructions for wives. Uh, mutual submission is God's design. Mutual submission is God's design. 
So he starts off, he says, in the same way, in the same way that slaves submit to masters and citizens submit to government, there is submission that takes place in marriage. And not because they're deserving, but because our identity as citizens of heaven determines the way that we behave in marriage. God's mission in marriage is not to create some kind of hierarchy. That's not the goal. His goal is to redeem marriage, to restore it to the relationship it was intended to be. And so Peter is continuing this theme of this entire letter, and now he's applying it to marriage. As citizens of heaven, with your identity in God, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, here's why we don't like the word submission, because it has been so misinterpreted and misused and abused, and, you know, the message has gotten so screwed up throughout the years. But the word submission in this context uh, actually means to put somebody else ahead of yourself. It doesn't mean uh, that you just have to go along with whatever they say. It's been completely... uh, sort of misinterpreted in the dynamic of marriage, but mutual submission is actually one of the most powerful relational dynamics in any relationship. In fact, it's mentioned over and over and over again throughout the New Testament, not only by Peter, but by the Apostle Paul in several different places. This isn't on your outline, but in Ephesians 5.22, Ephesians 5.22, there is a verse that says this, and Paul is actually writing, and he says, "'Wives, submit to your husbands.'" And I've heard that verse before, and I've heard pastors talk about that verse, and they start right there, Ephesians 5.22. There you go. See, wives, you got to obey. It's right there. It's a great memory verse. Put it on the fridge. But here's the problem. If you read the original text, the word submit does not even exist in Ephesians 5.22. It actually only exists in Ephesians 5.21. And Ephesians 5.21 says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then verse 22 says, wives to husbands. And there's no verb in verse 22 because it's inferred from verse 21. It would be like if you said, if I said, hey, I'm going to go to the store. I wouldn't then say, would you like to go to the store with me? I would just say, hey, I'm going to go to the store. And then I'd say, do you want to go with me? And you know exactly where I'm going. I don't have to repeat it in the next sentence because it's already inferred from the first thing I said, right? And that's how these verses work together. Paul says, look, uh, husbands and wives, submit to one another. Well, why would we do that? Why, what does that mean to submit? It means to simply put one another first. It means simply in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude that Jesus had. He didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to, but he let go of that and for our benefit. And so do the same in your relationships. That's what submission is. It just means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you ahead of me. I'm going to put you ahead of me. And Peter says, husbands, and, or Paul says, husbands and wives, submit to one another, each of you putting the other first. Why would we do that? And he says, out of your reverence for Christ. And then wives to husbands and husbands to wives. And see, we miss that, and it gets all screwed up, and wives submit to your husbands. And when we hear this, we immediately think of all the men who are not worth submitting to. And I did a survey, and it's 100%. (laughs) Submission is not this. Submission is not, all right, men, you're in charge because you're the husband, so you get to make all the decisions, and, and wives, you have to follow, and you have to obey, and you have to just quietly go along with whatever he decides. Submission is mutual. We both submit to one another because of our reverence for Christ. In other words, I'm here for you, you're here for me. I'm putting you first, you're putting me first. It is a race to the back of the line. And when you do that, not only in marriage relationships, when you do that in any relationship, that's a good relationship. 
That's a friendship. That's a relationship that you want to be a part of. And you know why you do that? You don't say, hey, I'm going to put you first because I'm then expecting you to put me first. And I like when you put me first. You do that because that's how God modeled his behavior towards us. Because God put us first when we needed it. And then he says, now I want you to live in your relationships. I want you to live in your marriage. I want you to live the way that I have treated you. I want you to treat each other. So when Peter says, wives, submit to your husbands or accept the authority of your husbands, it is with this mindset that our identity is in Christ. As citizens of heaven, this is how Jesus behaved towards us. And that even if they don't reciprocate, we do this because Jesus did it for us. But there's something else you need to know uh, about submission. Submission is not blind obedience. We get this so screwed up in our culture because submission is such a a word that means something different in our sort of uh, language today. Submission is meant to reflect the goodness and the kindness of Jesus that he has displayed towards us. But it is not an an authority structure. It's not meant to be a, a construct that says, all right, if you got the right plumbing, then you get to be in charge. It's not what it means. It doesn't mean, okay, uh, you're the boss. You tell your wife what to do, and she has to obey. It doesn't mean, as a woman, you better obey your husband, and you better be quiet little fly on the wall and respond whenever he says to jump. It doesn't mean that. Submission does not mean that you have to endure abuse or abandonment. It doesn't mean that you have to stay in an abusive relationship. We talked about this a little bit last week, and I want to be really clear. You have options if you're in an abusive relationship. Submission does not mean I'm going to put you first so you can continue to be verbally abusive or physically abusive. It doesn't mean that. So I want to be really clear. It's not blind obedience. At the same time, uh, you know, I, I've sat down with couples who have said, man, we just, our relationship, I, it's just hanging by a thread. And I'm going, all right, tell me what's going on. And, well, he plays in two softball leagues every week, and I just, I can't handle it. Well, that's not an abusive relationship. That's just a bad relationship. He, he, he might not uh, look at you when you talk to him because he's distracted or, or, you know, he may not pursue you the way you'd like him to, but that's not an abusive relationship. That's just a bad relationship. And in that case, Peter admonishes that you live your life in such an honorable way that you win him over by the way that you live and that we do that for each other. And then he, 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 Peter writes this, and here's what uh, I, I would take out of this. True beauty is when you look like Jesus. And I just got to say, this is something that I want not only uh, written and told and talked about with every single girl and every single young woman, but guys as well. Because this is important. He says, don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. So let's walk through that for a minute. What Peter is saying is that who you are is way, way, way more important than how you look. And we live in a society today that really promotes the way that you look. And it really promotes beauty, and it really promotes fashion, and it really promotes all these things. And you need to know that your character is what makes you beautiful. It is who you are as a person that makes you beautiful. You are beautiful because you were created by God, and he loves you. That is what makes you beautiful. Everything else is just icing on the cake. Everything else, it doesn't even matter. And so Peter is 
speaking here, and here, here's what's important for us, because we read this sometimes and we go, okay, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Well, what if I find myself to be an outgoing and talkative female? God's telling me, nope, nope, that you can't do that. You gotta just be very demure. Not at all. Peter is not speaking about uh, personality. He's not saying, hey, if you find yourself to be outgoing and talkative and uh, y- y- that you have to go against your personality and go against who God created you to be. Remember, the theme of this is in line with the way that we respond in certain situations. And so what Peter is saying is that God created you. He, he's saying that in all of our responses, remember, towards a godless government that is hostile towards us, towards potentially masters who are harsh towards us, towards an unbelieving husband who we follow Jesus and he doesn't, Peter is saying it's our responses that matter and that we, if we pay all this attention to our outward looks but that we don't pay the same amount of attention to what's going on inside, then it doesn't really matter because we will lose influence in the end. And so he's not speaking to temperament or personality. He's saying our goal is to win over people and that's often best done through our character. Peter isn't saying, women, you shouldn't dress nice and you shouldn't get your hair done and you shouldn't wear jewelry and you shouldn't wear makeup and you shouldn't care about the way you look. He's not saying that at all. He's simply saying your character is going to make a much bigger impact in the world than your appearance. Whatever amount of energy you give to your outward appearance, give just as much energy towards your character and your integrity and becoming like Jesus because true beauty is when you respond like Jesus does. And man, I wish, I wish every high schooler would hear that message. I hope that that rings out. If you're in, if you're in middle school, if you're in high school, uh, even young adults, we need to be reminded of this, that it is not outward beauty that matters. It is who you are as a person that matters. And Peter is bringing that right to the center of the conversation. If you're known for your outward beauty, but your inner character doesn't reflect the way of Jesus, you're really not going to retain influence in the world that needs to see the message of Jesus lived out. This is what God has done. This is who we are. So this is how we live. When it comes to government, when it comes to masters, when it comes to employers, when it comes to our approach to God, when it comes to our spouse, mutual submission, not blind obedience, and not because they deserve it, but because this is what God has done for us. Now, instructions for husbands. Unfortunately, we are out of time. So (laughs) here's the next verse. Again, he starts it the same way. In the same way, Remember, I've had this pattern of thought throughout this chapter. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. In the same way, in the same way that we respond to, uh, in the same way that slaves submit to masters, in the same way that um, citizens submit to governments and authorities, in the same way, in the same way, not because they're deserving, but because that's who we are. So that's how we live. So what are the instructions for husbands? Number one, seek to live with understanding. Seek to live with understanding. Men, you are to become students of your wives and you are to adapt to her uniqueness. And my job is, is to become a student of Cherry, become a student of her, and then adapt to her uniqueness. And the bond of friendship is actually strengthened the more that you know about someone. And so the more that you learn about them. But what happens in the marriage relationship is that both parties sort of evolve over time, and you're changing, and you're growing, and you're becoming different people. Uh, John Gottman is a, a, an author and a, a psychologist who studies marriage, and he says, in marriage, people often change, and they forget to tell each other. And then one day you wake up and you're like, man, I don't even know you. 
Like, no, because we're always changing. So you always have to keep studying each other and learning about each other. And we assume we know everything about the person we're married to, when in reality, they're not the same, and neither are we. Uh, Cherry and I have been married for 22 years. And when I look back at the day we got married, we, we've been married longer than we haven't been married. Think about that. That's wild to think about. And... Uh, and when I think about who we were the day we got married, we are two totally different people today. Two totally different people. And so we have to spend time updating our information about each other because it becomes obsolete over time, right? Do you know your spouse's favorite band? Do you know their favorite color? Do you know their three best friends? Do you know their current stresses? Knowing these things helps build the bond that you feel with them because when you feel connected to them, then it helps bring quick repair when you guys are disagreeing. I love what it says in Proverbs, it's not on your outline, but it says, uh, joyful is the person who finds wisdom, the one who gains understanding. And I think this is a little bit stereotypical, but sometimes as men, we want to fix stuff. And sometimes the goal is not just to fix things, but to just understand, understand where your spouse is coming from. And, and both, both of us need to do this. But Peter says, men, live with understanding, especially in a culture where women had no legal standing, where women had uh, oftentimes, it was an arranged marriage, and, and they found themselves with almost no capital. They're at the mercy of their husbands. And Peter's saying, husbands, you've got to just seek to understand her. Understand where she's coming from. Oftentimes, when you are in a disagreement with your spouse, one of the best ways to start that is to start with this phrase, this is how I feel. Because it's less of an attack of here's what you did, and rather it's here's how I feel. When you say that or when you did that, I felt this way. And I'm not saying that you're wrong, and I'm not saying I'm just, I'm just opening uh, communication so that we can begin to understand each other. Because I want to understand where you're coming from, and I want you to understand where I'm coming from. And I love this proverb. When you find wisdom, when you gain understanding, there's joy in that. It will strengthen the bond that you have with them. One of the biggest things you could learn about your spouse is how they give and receive love. This, we're pretty familiar with this. If you've never heard of this, there's a guy, uh, Gary Chapman, who is a, uh, a psychologist and uh, wrote a book called The Five Love Languages and talks about the idea that oftentimes we give and receive love the way that we speak love is different. There's different love languages, and we'll go through them very briefly. There's uh, words of affirmation. There's uh, uh, physical touch, quality time, uh, giving of gifts, words of affirmation, and acts of service. He says there's these different things, and that makes sense to us. That's an easy concept to understand because we know there's different languages spoken in different parts of the world. In Mexico, they speak Spanish. In Korea, they speak Korean. Quebec, they speak French, right? And so it makes sense that we would speak different languages. In Arkansas, they speak redneck. Uh, in Detroit, they speak Snoop Shizzle, right? So uh, different languages. And here, here's how this works. If I speak the language of words of affirmation, then it's natural for me to want to share love with my spouse by giving her words of affirmation. But if that's not her language, then I can heap words of affirmation on her all day, and she's just, it's just like, zing, zing, zing. It's just like, it's missing. But if her love language is quality time and mine's not, then she's like, hey, let's hang out together. And I'm like, man, she never says anything nice about me. And do you see how that's a miss? Like we're speaking different languages. And so one of the things you can do to become a student of your spouse is to learn their love language. Maybe it's quality time. And you're going, well, I just, I just want physical touch. That's how I feel loved. But studies show that women on average talk twice as much as men. Now the same studies also show that they have to repeat everything they said the first time. 
And so that's probably why. But what is your spouse's love language? What would it look like to learn their language so that you could become a student of them? And, and Peter says, learn to understand. Live with understanding. Seek to understand where they're coming from rather than just always try to fix things or, or get into arguments. Secondly, he says, honor her as your equal partner. Peter reminds us as husbands that we are to give honor to our wives even though she may be weaker physically. She's our equal partner in God's eyes. Now, Peter's speaking in general terms. I know that there's some of you wives that are like, I can take him down. I'm not weaker. Bring it. I totally understand that. But generally speaking, generally speaking, women are weaker physically. And in a first century context, women did not have legal standing. In fact, uh, Peter's saying that in the kingdom of God, it's not going to work like that. In the kingdom of God, they are your equal partner. In the kingdom of God, they're a joint heir. In the kingdom of God, they're going to inherit everything that you inherit. Now, this is really, really important because you, you need to know in the first century, wealth was passed down through the sons. Wealth was never passed down through the daughters. If there was family wealth, you inherited it as a son, never as a daughter. As a daughter, you were simply given away in marriage, and often it was done for political gain, it was done for financial gain, it was done for uh, national politics. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that people negotiated their, uh, their daughters away in marriage. But if you wanted to inherit wealth, you had to be a son. And Peter says they're a joint heir. They are an equal partner. They're going to inherit everything that you inherit. So in, in this kingdom, in God's kingdom, as a citizen of heaven, we don't do marriage that way. And here's what's interesting. If you look back at the creation narrative, if you think back to uh, this story, God says male and female, he created them. God created male and female, and he created them in his own image. And so when you read the story of Adam and Eve, you discover that they're in the Garden of Eden, and God provides everything for them. Everything they need is provided. Their identity, their security, everything they are is in God. And then something happens, and they disobey one of God's commands, and there's some consequences that take place. And some of the consequences, when you read them, and these aren't meant to be prescriptive. This isn't God saying, I'm, I'm doing this to you. This is simply God saying, this is the natural consequence of sin. This is what happens when brokenness and sorrow enters this world that I've created. And when you read some of the consequences, it says uh, he, to the woman, uh, you will, you will uh, desire your husband and he will rule over you. That's part of the natural consequence of sin entering the world. He says to the man, in, in, in pain and by the sweat of your brow, you're going you're gonna to till the ground and provide for your family. And now what you discover in this, in this creation narrative is there is a power struggle between the sexes. He says, you're going you're gonna to desire for your husband. Your desire will be to control him, and he will rule over you. And that's not prescriptive. It's not, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. It's not, this isn't my original design. This is God saying, hey, as a result of sin entering the world, you're going to experience this power struggle. And then it happens all throughout human history that there is this struggle, and women never inherit anything, and all the wealth is passed down through the sons, and what, is, what happens is a group of people come to Jesus and they say, hey, we want, we want to ask you a question. They're really trying to trap him. And they said, Moses said that we could divorce our wives for any reason. We could just issue them a certificate of divorce and be done and move on. But what do you say? 
In other words, Jesus, there's this power struggle that's been going on since the beginning, and uh, men have all the leverage, and women don't. What do you say? And Jesus actually quotes from the book of Genesis. And he quotes from something that takes place before Adam and Eve sinned. And he said, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one. Now, when you think about this, a man would never leave his father and mother. All of the wealth is inherited through the sons. So men did not leave their father and mother and be joined to their wife. What happened was women left their father and mother and were joined to their husband. But Jesus intentionally disrupts this power differential. He completely flips it on its head. And he reaches back to something that's written before sin entered the world. And the fact that it's written way before brokenness enters the world, and the fact that Jesus would actually quote this as a way to answer their question as an intentional upheaval of this power dynamic. This isn't simply God's way of saying, hey, uh, don't live with your parents forever. Like, move out of their basement if you're going to get married. That's not what he's saying. That is a good idea. But here's what God is saying. Here's what Jesus, this response. He says, you don't get to cling to inherited wealth and power and use that as leverage over your wife. You, you, leave your husband, you leave your father and mother, and you become one with her. And you leave that behind, and you find your identity in God. He is your creator and your provider and your sustainer. And then the two of you become one, which means you are equal partners in life. You're equal partners. And now Peter is reminding us, as citizens of heaven, our identity is found in God, and we are joint heirs. We are equal partners. The two becomes one which means we don't fight over which one, we become a new one. That's so important. So Peter's reminding us, look, men, you seek to live with understanding, and also you need to know she is your equal partner, and number three, you serve her the way Jesus served the church. When we hear that Jesus is the head of the church, when you read that kind of language in the scripture, it gets so twisted and so misinterpreted to mean that the man is the head of the house, which means in our sort of thinking, well, he's the boss, so you make the decisions, and wives, you submit, so that means you obey. But the word head doesn't mean boss, and the word submit doesn't mean obey. In fact, the word head, the way we think of it, we go, oh, they're the head of the company, right? Or they're the, the head of the army. We think of the person in charge. But in, in the Greek language, the head of the army would have been the first soldier into battle. So it's talking about the one to engage first, the tip of the spear. That's the head. So it doesn't speak to authority. It speaks to order of engagement. So here's what that means. In Ephesians, Paul's reminding us, men, Jesus is the head of the church, meaning he moved in our direction first. He moved toward us first. And then as husbands, we are tasked with doing the same thing. If we're truly going to interpret these verses correctly, it means, men, you lead the way in submission or laying down your life for the sake of your spouse. That's what it means. And Peter gives us this warning. If you don't seek to understand her, if you try to leverage your position as head for your own benefit, if you don't treat her as your equal, your prayers will be hindered. What? He's like, yeah, God's not going to listen to you if you treat her that way. And here's why. I mean, this isn't directly from the scriptures, but here's, here's my opinion. She was God's daughter before she was your wife. If you're married to my daughter, 
and you start to treat her poorly, and you start to try to boss her around, and you don't treat her as your equal, and you don't serve her, and you try to leverage authority to get her to do what you want her to do, and then you try to come and hang out with me and be buddy-buddy with me and act like we're pretty good friends and we're pretty close, it's probably going to hinder the relationship a little bit. I don't know how good of a relationship we would have, right? I mean, think about this. And Peter goes, look, treat her as your equal. Seek to understand her. Honor her. Because she's going to inherit everything you inherit because you are both citizens of heaven. And do this so that your prayers aren't hindered. In other words, she belonged to God way before she was your spouse. She was his daughter before she was your wife. Now, final thought. This is super important. Peter's instructions are a two-way street. Peter's instructions are a two-way street. Mutual submission. Character is more important than appearance. Living with understanding. Honoring each other as equal partners. Serving one another. All of these things go both directions. So while Peter is writing in the context of a first century construct, the intention is that our citizenship in God's kingdom actually determines our behavior and that we can have incredible marriage relationships that actually point people to Jesus. That the way that we live in marriage can actually show people what it looks like to have a relationship with God. In fact, this is what the, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 as he wraps up this section about submitting to one another. He actually, again, quotes from Genesis the same section of verses that Jesus quoted. And here's what he says. As the scriptures say, reaching back to Genesis, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And then Paul expounds on this. He says, this is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. As citizens of heaven, this is how we are to conduct our relationships. And this idea of mutual submission, of a race to the back of the line, of a, of a submission competition, right? This whole idea is, I'm going to put you first. And I'm going to do that because, not because you deserve it, but because I'm a citizen of heaven and God put me first when he didn't have to. So I'm going to treat you that way. And when any relationship has two people that are both doing that for each other, that's a really great relationship to be a part of. Whether it's a parenting relationship, whether it's a friendship, whether it is an employee-employer relationship, whether it's a neighborhood association, anytime that people go, no, I, no, I'm going to put you first. No, I'm going to defer to you. That is a great relationship to be a part of. And when we do that in marriage, it is one of the most powerful relational dynamics. When we live this way, Paul says it's an illustration to our world of how much Christ loves us, how much Jesus loves us. So maybe you're here today and you needed to just be reminded of one of these principles. You just needed to be reminded to understand, to live with understanding, to honor, to mutually put the other person first. And if that's you, I want to encourage you, take this home and put, put into practice one of these ideas, just one, whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with your kids, whether it's with a, a, another friend, I want to encourage you to do that this week. And then uh, maybe you're here and you've never said yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family. Maybe as we've been talking about citizenship in God's heaven, you're like, what does that even mean? I want to encourage you to say yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family. See, scriptures tell us that God sent Jesus into the world to become one of us, to, to reunite us with God because ultimately you were created by God and for God to exist in community with God and others. In the ultimate expression of love, he allowed himself to be put to death. His body was laid in a tomb, and according to multiple eyewitness accounts, he rose from the dead. 
And that means there's more to this life than this life. And you have been invited to be a part of God's kingdom forever, to be a part of God's family. And if you've never said yes to that, you need to know you don't earn your way into it. You don't behave your way into it. That's who God has created you to be. And when you say yes to that, then you start to live out that identity. And if you've never said yes, you can do that by just agreeing with this prayer as we close. And then after we pray and after we close, if, if you're new or if we've never met, I would really love to connect with you right down here. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for today. And God, there are those of us who would pray this prayer, forgive my sins and help me to follow you. And I want to say yes to the invitation to be a part of your family. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me to do my best with that new identity, to live that out in the way that I live, to trust you and to follow you. And God, I pray for uh, each and every one of us, those of us who are married, those of us who are single, those of us who are single again, those of us who are uh, engaged, those of us who are dating, those of us who are in all of us, God, have relationships with friends, uh, with kids, with coworkers, with employers and employees. And these relational principles apply. So may we, as citizens of heaven, reflect mutual submission in the relationships around us. And as a result, may we point people to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.